everyone. Uh, this is our Lupunzi reading group. We are continuing our reading of the structure of behavior. The page where we're picking up is, uh, I'm not 100% sure because of some technical issues, but I'm, I, I think we're on page 62 of the translation. Uh, um, so we're in, we skipped chapter one. If, uh, if you're following along, we, we read the introduction and then we skipped chapter one and then we started into chapter two and we're I believe in the second section of that chapter. So the last couple of sessions, we we looked at this criticism of uh, the reflex theory of of Pavlov's version of the reflex theory, um, and so sort of the brief version of the criticism is essentially that it doesn't really work. Um, you if you try to um, sort of assign quantities to the different reflexes that uh, are supposed to combine together to um, produce complex behavior, uh, it turns out that there's no set of quantities that makes a consistent, uh, like, you can't solve the... <coughs> sorry, <clears throat> just a sec. Uh, sorry, I don't know what that was. Um, yeah, sorry, there's no consistent set of quantities you can assign to the, the variables that make all the equations true at the same time. Um, so, like, certain uh, reflexes or certain stimuli are uh, excitatory, certain are inhibitory, but if you try to combine them together, you find that some have to be excitatory in certain um, combinations and inhibitory in other combinations. So, so you can't assign like a single quantity and say this um, stimulus has um, value, you know, seven or minus three or whatever. Um, and so uh, the lesson that Merleau-Ponty draws from this is that the real stimulus, like what, what is actually sort of um, effective in the... Uh, Behavior, behavioral response of the organism is the whole situation, the whole sort of structured stimulus, and not like a a single um, sort of punctual uh, stimulus. So instead of saying that like the light or the sound or the smell or whatever is a stimulus on its own, instead it's the whole combination, the whole situation where the organism is found. So the whole environment of light, sound, smell, everything all sort of working together at the same time. This whole st complex structure acts as a as a whole on the organism and not as a sort of combination of uh, simple elements. Uh, so that, that was the sort of criticism of the reflex theory that we saw um, in the previous section. And then uh, in the, this section that we started, um, I think last session, he looks at <clears throat> he looks at the way that this um, theory is sort of connected with uh, an account of localization in the brain. Um, so the idea is that, um, again, if you have uh, this kind of simple stimulus response um, structure of behavior, um, you would expect that you would likewise have uh, a sort of simple localization in the brain so that like one um, stimulus, uh, say like a, a certain visual stimulus, a certain um, light in a, a region of the retina or whatever, um, this stimulus would affect one brain area and uh, that brain area would have an excitatory connection with other brain areas um, uh, or it would have inhibitory connections with uh, certain other brain areas. Um, and so the, the way that a, a certain type of stimulus affects um, behavior would be um, would, would correlate with a, a structure of localization in the brain. So, yeah, you would have like a very simple kind of localization of like um, different types of stimulants would have different areas in the brain that correspond to them. And uh, at the same time, you would have like uh, the, the type of response that is elicited by these stimuli would be determined by what kinds of connections those different brain areas have to each other. Um, and this, I mean, turns out to be not entirely false. Um, like this is sort of an oversimplification. Um, but there are um, uh, what are called topographical maps in the cortex. Um, so, for example, there's uh, um, a uh, motor map kind of uh, representation. So, like, you're in motor areas of the cortex. There's a, a sort of um, uh, distorted map of the human body with, with uh, regions that are more... Um, flexible or have a greater variety of motor responses, uh, those regions are overrepresented in motor areas of the brain. So for example, like you see sometimes little diagrams of this in like neuroscience textbooks, and it looks like there's a human body, except that the hand, especially the right hand is huge, or the, you know, if we're a right-handed person, 
Um, the right hand is huge um, because uh, we have very fine motor control with our right hand and to a lesser extent left hand um, for right-handed people. Um, and then regions that have limited motor um, flexibility, like um, say your lower back are much less, um, have a much smaller representation. So like, yeah, your, your face and your tongue, especially your hand, uh, all these regions are um, overrepresented. Uh, sorry, would you mind uh, just muting for a second um, um, uh, if you're not speaking? Uh, there's some noise. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and so um, this this sort of representation of like, you know, a simple correspondence between um, stimuli and brain areas is uh, an oversimplification, but there are areas of, um, of, uh, of the brain that um, correspond in relatively straightforward ways yeah and the, so there's the motor representation there's also um retinotopic maps they're called um so like areas in the visual um cortex that uh sort of corresponds to different regions of the retina um so that like light shining in region one will um produce uh, a response in uh, a corresponding region in the visual cortex and then in region two of the retina um, it will produce a response in a uh, second region of the visual cortex and so on. So you can sort of draw a map of the retina on the visual cortex. Um, so there are these sorts of straight or relatively straightforward um, representations of the uh, of stimuli uh, in the functioning of the brain. Um, but uh, obviously the way that this is depicted in, uh, in Pavlov is like an oversimplification. Um, and so some of the, like, what we're going to go through today, I think, is um, some of the ways in which this is uh, an oversimplification. So some of the things that make the the actual functioning of the uh, of the cortex uh, and the brain in general more complicated than just, like, a, a simple correspondence between the stimuli and brain regions. Um, yeah, so, and then Angus has put in the chat here the, about handedness um, and what this implies about habituation. Um, yeah, I guess... The, the question here is um, um, sort of which comes first. So is it the fact that you use your right hand more that makes it that the area is larger or is it the fact that the area is larger that makes you use your right hand more? Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's probably hard to um, um, give like a, a sort of linear causal account of this. Um, there's probably a kind of um, feedback between like, I guess some sort of like initial um, preference for the right hand, uh, and then you know the fact that the right hand is preferred in in terms of um, you know fine manipulation would uh, in turn sort of reinforce the initial preference, and so you have the sort of circular causality where um, yeah you have like the the preference for the right hand makes it more likely to be used, and the fact that it's more likely to be used makes it more likely to be preferred in later use. Uh, so you would have like a, a constantly sort of expanding uh, reinforcement of the um, of that of that right hand preference. Um, but yeah, and I mean, just as a sort of aside, um, there's also like um, so brain regions um, that are connected to motor responses are sort of crossed. Uh, so like the left side of your brain um, controls the right side of your body, and the right side of your brain controls the left side. Uh, in most people. Um, um, but left-handed people, some have like reversed, uh, sort of, um, uh, it's almost like a mirror image of a right-handed person. Uh, so like, um, their left hand is controlled by the right side of their brain and the right, uh, the left hand representation in the right side of the brain is like much bigger than the, uh, than the right hand representation on the left side of the brain. But there are other people, other left-handed people that have like, uh, uh, not just a sort of mirror image of a right-handed person, but like a, a completely different sort of um, uh, architecture, I guess you could say, of, of like um, distribution of uh, motor regions. So yeah, they, they don't have that same sort of um, dominance of one side over the other, for example. Um, anyway, it's just sort of an interesting, weird thing like that happens. Um, like and and sort of yeah the whole like evolutionary origin of handedness is also quite obscure. Um, like why is it that uh, something like ninety percent of humans are right-handed, um, and then why why would there be like 
5% that are left-handed, and then out of that number, a certain proportion have this um, sort of non-mirror um, non, uh, architecture of the brain. So yeah, there's a lot of weird um, not like things that haven't been explained yet. Uh, yeah, and then the, yeah, there's that association of left-handedness with evil. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, the word sinister, for example, um, etymologically refers to the left-hand side. Uh, um, and then, of course, now has the connotation of, of evil. Um, uh, and I think this association of the left with with evil is uh, not uh, limited to like Western culture. I think there are a lot of other cultures that make the same association. Um, but yeah, anyway, there's there's a lot of like obscure and unexplained material about this whole handedness um, situation. That and that and this already sort of points to like the limitations of um, just seeing, uh, just trying to make this um, um, like one-to-one mapping between stimuli and brain areas that Pavlov is trying to do. Like just the fact that um, you know the right-hand side and the left-hand side have like very different um, valences for different people um, in terms of you know which side is uh, dominant, so, and then how that dominant side relates to the. Um, less dominant side, uh, like all these things already show that there's more going on in the way that the brain is structured than just like uh, particular stimuli corresponding to particular points of the cortex. Uh, Okay, so let's jump into the text for today. Um, So someone could read from the top of page 62, uh, or the first full paragraph on 62. I can read. Um, Although the discussion remains open, both concerning the limits of this or that center and concerning the definition of mental functions to be localized in each particular case. Agreement seems to have been established concerning the meaning of localizations in general and concerning the significance of place and nerve substance. We would like to formulate some of the established established results since they will allow us to become acquainted with the quote-unquote central sector of behavior and to understand its insertion in the body. One, a lesion, even localized, so I guess this is the first established result, a lesion, even localized, can determine structural disorders which concern the whole of behavior, and analogous structural disorders can be provoked by lesions situated in different regions of the cortex. The older theory of localizations underestimated two difficulties of fact, that of localizing the lesion and that of localizing the function, which Monacau has insisted insisted upon but also a third difficulty, that of defining the illness studied and the corresponding normal function, which difficulty could not be surmounted without a methodological reflection in a theory of biological knowledge. It has long been known that the constitution of quote-unquote nosological personalities, the discovery of the fundamental disorder from which the multiplicity of observable symptoms is derived, is a problem for pathology. Um, but in general pathology, in general pathology, the symptoms are sometimes given unequivocally. Massive deficiencies are involved. Often, the organism ceases responding to certain physicochemical excitations in all circumstances. The disorder affects real fragments of behavior, or to be more exact, since it is the fundamental adaptations with regard to the vital milieu which are compromised. The solicitations of this milieu are ordinarily sufficient to reveal and characterize the illness. Thus, it will be possible rather often to define pathological behavior by means of a realistic analysis in which the characteristics conserved and those abolished are enumerated. In order to interrelate the symptoms and delimit a nosological entity, one will often be able to discover a real chain of effects and causes, observable in principle, which lead from the superficial manifestations to the essential disorder. The latter can then be designated as the causal origin of the illness. Thus, even if it alters the functioning of the entire organism, it has a defined site and can be localized on the map of the body. Carried over into mental pathology, this method of realistic analysis and causal explanation has led to defining aphasia, or more generally the agnosias, by certain circumscribed disorders, by the absence of certain contents of behavior. It was believed that the symptomatology of mental illness could also be content with noting deficiencies. It was not realized that the symptom is an organism's response to a question from the milieu, and that the tableau of symptoms varies then with the questions which are posed to the organism. 
The symptom always corresponds to an expectation of the mind, which expectation must be precise in order that the symptoms be significative. Taking over the confused classifications which are given in the language, the physician wondered only if the sick person could speak, understand, write, or read. The psychologists, on the other hand, although they had abandoned the quote-unquote faculty of speaking or the quote-unquote faculty of remembering, had limited themselves to giving the empiricist equivalence of these. The concrete act of speech or of reference to the past was reduced to the possession of certain specific contents of consciousness, to quote-unquote representations or quote-unquote images. Thus, aphasia and amnesia necessarily had to be defined from the beginning as the loss or the loss of control of certain collections of mental states. Physicians unknowingly singled out in the behavior of the aphasic that which could be interpreted as a disorder of the verbal images. If other symptoms presented themselves, they were either attributed to supplementary lesions, they were put aside as altering the quote-unquote purity of the case, or since the observation of the patient almost always went beyond the theoretical framework of the illness, one sought to derive the deserving the disturbing symptoms from the quote-unquote primary disorders, paraphasia from psychic deafness, disorders of writing from the destruction or inefficacy of the quote-unquote verbal images. Um, maybe I'll stop there. But yeah, I think it's a good place to stop, yeah. It seems like uh, what he's setting up here is a... Uh, rejection or heavy qualification of this earlier understanding which seems to be saying amounts to basically a kind of like faculty psychology where you have this uh, kind of predefined stock of behaviors which can be like knocked out um, by a lesion in a relatively discrete like a, a you know a lesion in a part of the brain that is associated with the faculty that is disturbed um, and I think that the the understanding of the effect of lesions that he's going to move towards is one in which there's this kind of overall and holistic functioning, which uh, while there is a kind of localization, it, it sort of becomes dimmer overall. And so like the finer, the finer um, aspects of perception or speaking are the more difficult and uh, uh, more difficult to control. Um, or like more detailed figures that stand out from the ground start to disappear as opposed to, you know, uh, discrete faculty disappearing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think so. One, one point here that he emphasizes is how these sort of these supposed faculties or these, um, abilities that are supposed to be lost with a lesion of a certain area of the brain are sort of common sense ideas of like, Everyone sort of knows what it means to be able to speak or to be able to remember, etc. Um, and then this person who has suffered um, an injury to the brain, you know, in in sort of a common sense or obvious sense, is unable to speak. And so you say, okay, well, this injury um, must have, a, you know, destroyed the the faculty of speech or the ability to speak. Um, and even if you sort of translate these um, faculties into supposedly more scientific terms and you say something like you know it destroyed the um representations of speech sounds or something like that you're still essentially just using um these common sense ideas of like you know uh what abilities a human a sort of normal or average human being has um you you're just sort of translating these common sense terms into like more scientific terms but you're not really um you're not really doing uh more of a fine-grained analysis of the behavior. And so um, what he uh, will talk about, I think, later is how, like, when you look at um, the speech of someone or the attempts at speech of someone who has suffered a brain injury, it's not just that there's, like, a, uh, it's not it's not sort of an on and off switch of, like, a normal person is able to speak and then this in injury happens to their brain and then they're unable to speak. Um, instead, you find um, various ways in which speech is disordered. Um, like um, it could be the art actual articulation movement movements, so like movements of the tongue and um, other um, parts of the mouth that are required to produce speech sounds that could be disturbed um, in such a way that they they are they're unable to pronounce the sounds of speech, but they might still be able to um, write normally and to um, understand spoken 
language normally. Um, so that's one possibility. Or it could be that um, like syntax is disturbed. Like they, they can produce all the sounds and they can pronounce individual words. But when they try to put them together into a sentence, the it doesn't make any sense or like the sort of grammatical structure of a sentence doesn't work. Um, uh, so you can you can imagine like a, a variety of different ways in which speech could be disturbed. Um, and uh, and so when you just say that, you know, the patient is unable to speak like this very sort of superficial description of of the um, of, you know, what has changed after the injury um, doesn't really capture the the detail of like what exactly is disturbed in the patient's attempt to, to speak. Uh, and then the other sort of element of this is that um, this description, like the patient is unable to speak, uh, is, is a sort of like deficiency model of what has happened. Uh, so it, it, it's it like, as you said, uh, there's sort of like a, a stock of faculties or abilities that a, a person has before the injury. And then the lesion occurs to a certain area of the brain. And then one of those faculties disappears uh, or is, is destroyed or whatever. Um, so it, like the, the patient after the lesion is like, sort of represented as being uh, the same as they were before the lesion, except minus one or several of the faculties that they had previously. Um, whereas if you sort of analyze things in a, a more fine-grained way and, and with, without this sort of presupposition of a like fixed stock of faculties, you find instead that the behavior of the patient after the lesion is still in some way an attempt to cope with the environment to um, respond to what um, possibilities the environment offers and make appropriate actions, uh, except that it, it has to, because of the lesion, it has to be performed in a very different way. Um, and so, um, um, yeah, so like, for example, um, in the case of a stroke, um, so a stroke is often uh, involves a very localized lesion. So a particular blood vessel in the brain bursts and damages a certain area of the brain. Uh, and you might lose, for example, the ability to um, pronounce words, um, uh, you know, as a result of this lesion in the brain. But then after weeks or months, you might return, you might regain some of that function. Um, uh, you might have, you know, still some difficulty speaking and, and there might be some slurring, for example, but um, you, you regain at least partially the ability to articulate words. Um, and so what this sort of shows is that this ability to articulate words can't be like sort of localized in a very simple way as like this region of the brain controls the articulation of words um, and and no other region of the brain is involved. Uh, instead, we find that um, the the person as a sort of whole organism as as a you know an entity that is trying to perform actions that are appropriate to a particular setting. Um, is able to accommodate to um, restrictions like those brought about by lesions uh, to achieve a certain goal, even if it's not quite as effective or not done in the same way as it would normally be uh, be done. Um, but there's a, there's a response of the whole organism to the situation, um, as opposed to like a very um, sort of simplistic idea that there's like uh, one faculty or one ability that is just sort of deleted from the organism. Um, so this is like the other the other aspect is yeah the the whole organism response as opposed to uh, just one uh, ability that is you know destroyed by the lesion uh, and so what this means for localization is that um, like if if that very simplistic uh, picture were accurate then you could just say you could just look at like people that had suffered these various brain injuries and you know identify what faculties or abilities they were missing. And then say, okay, the the injury um, destroyed the faculty of speech, or maybe a more precise one, like the articulation of words. Um, therefore, you know, the injury to this area, you know, the um, yeah, so the injury to this area destroyed this faculty. Therefore, that area was responsible for that faculty, or or controlled that faculty, or whatever. Um, but because things don't actually work out in this very simplistic way, it's it's much harder to say that you know one area of the brain has this like you know sort of common sense um, description of what it does uh and and this like is borne out to some extent at least in more uh more recent um research on brain functioning using like fmri for example um it turns out that any like even something that seems 
in some ways, uh, like a very coherent and sort of cohesive um, ability like speaking uh, involves a, a variety of different brain areas. Um, um, it, it, there's not like one area that that's sort of like the speech area. Um, there, there are a variety of areas that are all involved in, in producing speech. And um, there's also a flexibility in recovery from damage, uh, to, at least to some extent. Um, you can, you know, like I mentioned earlier, after a stroke, you can recover the ability to articulate, um, um, maybe not perfectly, but, um, uh, you know, you can uh, actually produce understandable sounds. Um, uh, so, yeah, you can learn how to, like, there's, uh, you know, what's called plasticity in the brain, meaning that different areas can um, be involved in different processes and uh, after after learning or habituation. So um, what normally would have been done by area one could, after an injury to area one, instead be done by area two. Um, and uh, and so all of, all of these facts just make it much harder to say that there's like a, a sort of um, correspondence between uh, function and area of the brain. Um, and this, this is what localization would, um, if it were effective, is, is what it would do, it would be to make that correspondence. Um, so yeah, the localization turns out to be much more complicated than anyone had sort of expected in the early 20th century. Makes me think of what we talked about um, with respect to embryo development and how removing a portion of the embryo won't result in, you know, if, if it's done at an early enough stage in development, won't result in like a chicken that's missing a leg, for instance, it will just result in an overall smaller organism. Seems like something similar is going on here. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good comparison because um, in both cases, we have some sort of um, holistic structure. Um, you know, what exactly that means is, is difficult to pin down, but um, uh, in each case, we have an organism as a whole that, um, you know, the, the, the whole as such has some sort of effect on the development of all the parts, um, as opposed to each individual part sort of having its own um, uh, simple contribution that, and then each part just sort of adding up its contribution to the effect of the whole. Um, so like in the case of the embryo, it's it's the, the structure of an adult organ or of the the newly hatched chick, uh, for example, this is there's there's something that you know in the development of the embryo sort of directs the development towards something like um, the uh, newly hatched chick, um, and and this is at least to some extent um, uh, capable of sort of reorganizing the development structure, uh, the development process, so that uh, if it is disturbed. Uh, at an early enough stage, it, it will still develop into a normal chick. Um, uh, and then likewise, in the case of behavior, um, if the, you know, there, there's a sort of normal process of the way that the brain is involved in governing behavior or controlling behavior, but if that's disturbed in some sense, um, it's, you know, again, depending on the degree and the type of lesion, for example, um, but in certain cases, at least, it's possible to sort of restructure behavior to produce a similar effect uh, as um, as in the normal case or the uninjured case. Uh, so here, like the the sort of goal, the the target of um, producing a, a kind of behavior that's appropriate to a given situation seems to be in some way controlling the process through which the different parts um, bring about that behavior itself. So. Uh, yeah, so it's holistic in the sense that the actual whole organism is, uh, um, uh, at least at one level of description, is controlling the um, operation of the parts that make up that whole. Um, and so this is a very different type of um, sort of interaction or developmental process than just thinking of an organism as made up of simple components that each uh, contribute a, a particular sum, a particular quantity towards the the functioning of the whole organism. And this was also like, again, this the the this sort of um, embryology was one area, but then also like in uh, uh, in connection with behavior there where where there was this debate in the early 20th century between vitalists and mechanists. Um, and so the mechanists, uh, so Pavlov, for example, was a mechanist in in this sense. Um, you know, in, in that he wants to explain complex behavior in terms of simple components that each add up to produce uh, the complex effect. Um, 
Uh, and then in embryology, if you, for example, try to explain the development development of an embryo in terms of um, how each uh, portion of the embryo, you know, given its you know chemical composition and so on, how they they all sort of um, bring about the the process through which um, the normal um, uh, uh, like the chick in the case of a chicken um, develops out of the embryo. Um, so this would be a sort of mechanistic explanation. Uh, it, it only appeals to mechanical causes. Um, and then the vitalists in general sort of, it, there's a sort of negative sense of vital, vitalism in just saying that the mechanical causes are insufficient to explain these, um, these types of phenomena. Uh, and then like the, the sort of positive side of vitalism is generally much um, more uh, obscure, but often they would appeal to notions like a, uh, a vital force or uh, entelechy was a term that was used in uh, early 20th century embryology. Um, uh, you know, some sort of notion of uh, something something other than mechanical causation as being uh, involved in governing these processes. Um, uh, and then the, I mean, the objection to vitalism is always that this kind of um, other than mechanical causation is, is just sort of a verbal explanation uh, as opposed to a real uh, scientific explanation, like if, if you just say, oh, there's a vital force that governs the development of the embryo, you can explain anything just by saying there's a vital force that that controls it. Uh, and so you haven't really um, explained anything in that sense. Um, um, so yeah, the, the sort of negative side of vitalism, uh, the criticism of existing mechanical explanations and saying that mechanical explanation is insufficient to explain a certain phenomenon. Um, this negative side is uh, I think much more um, uh, effective uh, than sort of the positive side of of saying actually there's a this vital force or whatever. Um, you know, even if you reject that idea that uh, positing a vital force is an actual scientific explanation, you can still hold on to that negative side of vitalism and say that um, this mechanical explanation is not sufficient to account for um, you know, whether it's the development of an embryo or goal-directed behavior in an organism, uh, you know, any, any sort of, um, phenomenon that you think is, is not explicable in purely mechanical terms. Uh, so yeah, you can, you can sort of hold on to that negative side of vitalism without actually, um, accepting the, the sort of positive side. Okay. Uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read, um, next page or so. The force of the facts and the contradictions, contradictions of theory have obliged psychology and physiology to become aware of the postulates which had guided them in the classical conception of, of localizations. Like the philosophy of faculties, the theory of verbal images was at the same time realistic since it analyzed acts into real fragments and abstract since it isolated them from their context. The anatomical spirit sought to actualize nerve functioning in visible connections and circumscribed areas. Modern investigations, on the contrary, proceed by concrete description and ideal analysis. Cortical lesions rarely give rise to elective disorders involving certain fragments of normal behavior in isolation. Ordinarily, the organism does not become purely and simply indifferent to certain sectors of the physical chemical milieu and does not lose the aptitude for executing a certain number of movements. It is known that the aphasic or apraxic subject is capable or incapable of certain verbal or real actions depending on whether the latter are situated in a concrete and affective context or whether, on the contrary, they are quote-unquote gratuitous. In certain amnesic aphasias, observation shows that the subject has not, properly speaking, lost the words which he remains capable of employing in automatic language. He has lost the power of naming because, in the act of denomination, the object and the word are taken as representatives of a category and are thus considered from a certain quote-unquote point of view chosen by the one who names. This quote-unquote categorial attitude is no longer possible in a subject reduced to concrete and immediate experience. What is inaccessible is not then a certain stock of movements, but a certain type of acts, a certain level of action. As a consequence, we can understand why the disorder is not limited to a, uh, to a particular faculty, but is discovered in varying degrees in all those which demand the same attitude of gratuitousness. Quote, each problem which forces the patient beyond the sphere of immediate reality to that of the, quote, possible or to the sphere of representation ensures his failure, end quote. This happens whether it is a question of action, perception, will, feeling, or language. Thus, a specific disorder should always be put back into the context of the total behavior. From this point of view, a comparison becomes possible between the picture presented by aphasia and that by other, by other illnesses. It is always a question, in some measure, of the deficiency of a fundamental function, which Gelb and Goldstein call categorial attitude. 
head power of symbolic expression and Wirkung mediation function, darstellende Funktion. Since the behavior of the patient adheres much more closely to the concrete and immediate relations of the milieu than the behavior of the normal person, the fundamental disorder could also be defined as, quote, the impairment of the capacity to comprehend the essential features of an event, unquote. Or finally, as the incapacity of clearly disengaging a perceived, conceived, or exercised grouping as a figure from a ground treated as indifferent. Pathological transformation takes place in the direction of a less differentiated, less organized, more global, and more amorphous behavior. It may happen in alexia that the patient can read his name as a word, but not the letters which compose it taken separately. In motor aphasia, that he can pronounce a word inserted in a verbal ensemble, but not if it is isolated. In hemiplegia, the global movements, the quote-unquote legato, sometimes remain possible while the detailed movements, the quote-unquote staccato, are compromised. It is evident in here that sickness does not directly concern the content of behavior, but rather its structure, and consequently that it is not something which is observed, but rather something which is understood. The conduct of the patient is not deduced from the conduct uh, of the normal person by simple subtraction of parts. It represents a qualitative alteration. And it is to the extent that certain actions demand an attitude of which the subject is no longer capable that they are electively disordered. There appears here a new kind of analysis which no longer consists in isolating elements but in understanding the character of a whole and its imminent law. Sickness is no longer, according to the common representation, like a thing or a power from which certain effects follow. Nor is pathological functioning, according to a too widespread idea, homogeneous with normal functioning. It is a new signification of behavior, common to the multitude of symptoms. And the relation of the essential disorder to the symptoms is no longer that of cause to effect, but rather the logical relation of principle to consequence or, or of signification to sign. Right, so this is sort of the, the summary or the uh, moral of what we were talking about earlier, right? So um, when you look at um, a person who has suffered um, a lesion or a neurological illness of some kind, um, you can't just say, you know, the, you can't just say their their behavior is a normal person's behavior or an uninjured person's behavior minus function X. You can't just sort of um, subtract a certain function from their behavior and say that's what um, the lesion has brought about. Um, you instead have to look at um, the way that the uh, whole sort of structure of the behavior of the organism has been modified by the lesion. And in, in general, like this is a sort of generalization that he points to here, you can often see that what is disordered is the capacity to um, perform an action separate from the normal context in which it occurs. Uh, so sometimes, uh, like one example that, that uh, I, I remember reading about, um, not in this book, but in uh, uh, much later studies, there, there was a patient who had suffered some sort of brain lesion, um, and the the experiment the experimental task or the the task that they were trying to study was to um, match the angle of a of a slot take a, a a piece of paper or whatever and stick it uh, you know at the make it match the angle of a slot in a wall or in a box or whatever uh, and the patient wasn't able to do this they you know they they couldn't um, sort of match the the paper to the angle of the the slot but if you instead gave them a letter and said put the letter in the slot, they were able to do it. So in this case, the the sort of uh, goal-directed behavior of putting a letter through a slot, that is something that the patient could accomplish. Uh, but then the sort of abstract behavior of like, match this angle to the, the other angle, um, which has no sort of obvious goal-directedness, um, this behavior the patient was not able to accomplish. Um, and even though in terms of like the actual physical movements of your hand and so on, the the movements are the same. Um, so if you just sort of looked at the patient in terms of like, um, you know, can they match this angle? Um, you would say, OK, this like sort of coordination of visual um, perception of an angle and uh, motor responses of the hands is deficient. Like they, they lack this capacity that um, that. Uh, uninjured patients have or uninjured people have um, but then when you see the patient you know mailing a letter or, or you know performing the action of mailing a letter um, you would say oh they actually do have this capacity um, so you can't just sort of uh, in in the abstract say that they, there's this capacity that's missing it what what instead seems to be missing is something like the capacity to isolate uh, a particular um, behavior or a particular um, uh, set of actions 
um, from a setting uh, to perform these actions sort of um, gratuitously is the word that he uses here. Um, so like without a particular goal. Um, and uh, and so this is uh, something that happens in, in many cases, um, probably not all cases, but many cases of injury is that um, the sort of um, um, more coordinated or, or larger structure survives and then the isolated element doesn't survive or is much more disturbed. Uh, and like there's other cases, for example, of um, aphasics who are, are capable of singing. They can sing a song and, you know, articulate words while they're singing. But then if you ask them to like repeat the words just spoken, they, they are unable to do it or they um, if they try to do it, it's, it's very disturbed uh, and hard to understand. Um, so here, somehow, the the sort of coordination of the elements um, survives better than the elements themselves, which is obviously sort of the opposite of what you would expect from a, a very simple localization theory. Um, so again, uh, the the sort of lesson to draw here is that um, our understanding of behavior has to be in terms of these much larger structures um, as opposed to like individual simple elements that are then combined together to form complex holes. I thought it was interesting this uh, part at the top of page 64 where he talks about how aphasics are, um, I think it's 64. Yeah, the loss of this kind of categorical attitude um, or it's almost like a symbolic function where the word is representative of a category. Um, it sort of makes it sound like if, you know, aphasia as kind of like moving down like Hegel's ladder in the phenomenology towards um, sense certainty or like the loss of the, the ability of the, what Kant would assign to the understanding. Yeah, I think that, that's an interesting comparison. Um, I think, so this idea of like a, categorical attitude. I think the idea here is that like when you when you treat a name sort of in isolation, when, when you just sort of like point to an object and say, what is this? Um, there's no like real goal directedness or you don't understand necessarily if you're just, um, uh, you know, a, a patient or a subject in a psychological experiment and the experimenter just sort of points to an object and asks you to name it. The purpose of this whole operation is is obscure and like you don't really understand like what's the point of naming this object or or what is the what is the purpose of using this word um and so like you know obviously for most people we're we're still able to actually uh recall the name of the object and apply it to the the object that the experimenter is pointing to um like we can we can just sort of perform this um this naming action uh without having any like concrete goal um, in mind or understanding what the purpose is. But these aphasic patients, um, um, you know, however exactly, what exactly the sort of mechanism is, but for, for whatever reason, they are unable to perform this kind of abstract naming operation. So they, they can use a word, like they might be able to use um, complex expressions like pass the salt or whatever, um, uh, when there's like a, a goal in mind, but if you point towards a salt shaker and ask them, you know, what is this? They might not be able to recall the word salt or to use the word salt in this context, uh, or sort of outside of the, the context of a, of a goal. Um, so it's this sort of abstract use of a name just as like a, a, a pure symbol of a, of a type of object or a category of object. I think that's what he has in mind here. Um, um, uh, this, and, and this is like, this is a sort of arbitrary, like this is a sort of a key notion in linguistics is that any of these names that we use are arbitrary in the sense that every language has a completely different word or, you know, very different words that are used to um, symbolize particular categories of objects or entities. Um, and so there's no sort of intrinsic connection between the name and the category of objects. Um, and so this sort of arbitrary connection is seems to be what is... Um, hard for these aphasics to grasp. Uh, but instead, when when they have like um, uh, a connection between some sort of verbal behavior, even if it, if it is a, a more complex one, uh, and some sort of goal, that, that connection is experienced not as just a sort of arbitrary naming, but instead as a kind of um, means end connection that like, if I produce this kind of verbal behavior, I can bring about this type of end uh, or this type of goal that I'm trying to achieve. Um, so it's it's that 
arbitrary naming function of just applying a symbol to a category of entities that seems to be disturbed, at least in this class of aphasics. Uh, there's probably, it probably, you know, uh, it's probably not possible to generalize this to all aphasics, but like at least a certain category of aphasics have this um, difficulty with this arbitrary naming function. Uh, and so I think that's what he means here by this categorical attitude. I also want to take the opportunity to point out how great it is that there's a, a neuroscientist named Head. Um, there was also one in the early 20th century named Brain, um, which I think is incredible. Um, uh, like, you know, if if you wrote a TV show where you had a neuroscientist named Brain, you would you would say that's like stupid and like, you know, too obvious. But, you know, it's real. Um, um, uh, but yeah, that's just a aside. Um, I think we can go on to the next bit. Um, yeah, so we can start from the uh, bit that's in small type on page 65, if uh, someone would like to read. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I can read. Um, we're on, oh yeah, okay. Uh, the works of Gelb and Goldstein bring to light very clearly the structural character of disorders following cortical lesions and justify the idea of a comparison between different cerebral maladies. They find in a war-wounded man, Schneider, designated by his initial in their works, disorders which at the same time involve perception, visual recognition, and memory. <clears throat> the spatiality of tactile givens and tactile recognition, motor reactions, the patient is incapable of initiating or accomplishing a movement with his eyes closed, and finally, memory, intelligence, and language. For this patient, classical conceptions would authorize a diagnosis of psychic blindness, a stereognosis, and disorders of intelligence with diffuse lesions of different parts of the brain all at the same time. But it is a question of a man wounded in the war who seems to present a unique lesion caused by a piece of shell. Moreover, the integrity of feeling and of elementary motor reactions and the normal appearance of bodily and mental behavior and practical living makes the hypothesis of multiple lesions most unlikely. The disorders have a systematic character, but it appears impossible to derive these different deficiencies from one of them. For example, from the disorder of visual perception, which had been observed first and to which an unwarranted weight had been given as a consequence. All the deficiencies seem to express a fundamental alteration of behavior. Quote, the patient failed whenever it was necessary in order to react correctly, to possess a given all at once as an articulated whole, while he acted quickly and happily each time a successive process was sufficient for the accomplishment of his task, unquote. Thus we find ourselves in the presence of a disorder of structure determined by a circumscribed lesion. This correlation had already been observed by Head, who considered it a general law of nerve functioning. Uh, Goldstein himself compares the observation we have just summarized to those which other authors have presented in which this time are concerned with aphasics. The patient studied by Buhmann and Grunbaum presents disorders which at first glance are rather different from those of S. Gelb and Goldstein's patient sometimes recognized an object from certain characteristic details in spite of his visual disorders. For example, a dye with certain black dots marked on it. On the contrary, Bowman and Grunbaum's subject did not perceive details, and these authors concluded from this that no rapprochement could be made between the two cases. But in reality, even though it may happen that S is troubled by details which are too precise, he is, for example, incapable of recognizing a quote-unquote bad circle in a badly drawn circle. This is always because his perception is not directed toward the essential. The incapacity of surmounting details and the incapacity of perceiving any at all are in reality disorders of the same form. In the two cases, we are equally removed from the organized perception of the normal person who is capable of seizing holes without their being confused and of bringing to light details when they have a signification. Two patients present the same fundamental deficiency of the, quote, figure and ground structure, unquote. With S, the details are not chosen as essential and integrated into a whole. They are not properly perceived. Even though he recognizes an object by its height and its width, these properties are not apprehended directly, but reconstructed and deduced from certain confused signs. 
Thus, in reality, there are only superficial differences between the perceptive disorders in Gelb and Goldstein's subject and in Bowman and Grunbaum's. Moreover, the latter presents disorders of attention, uh, disorders of attention, thought, spontaneous language, denomination, and articulation, form of which is common and similar uh, to that of the disorders of S. In all of these domains, quote, the mental or psychomotor process is fixated at a primitive phase of development, which goes from an impression of an amorphous whole to a more differentiated structuration, ausgestaltung, unquote. Yeah, so this seems to be his, his broader thesis here, which is that these lesions, uh, rather than being, although he'll qualify this a little bit later, rather than being sort of localizable, there they lead to these structural deficiencies so that you th- details don't stand out because there is this kind of inability to form the the background structure against which they would be significant details yeah so they're sort of like opposite like the same sort of deficiency here has like opposite effects in these two different patients so the one patient um is sort of unable to recognize any details um and then the other patient like focuses on the details and is unable to sort of recognize the whole. Um, but what in, in each case, what the the sort of underlying deficiency that um, Merleau-Ponty is sort of diagnosing here is precisely the ability to connect the, the details with the whole um, in in sort of a, a an appropriate way. Um, so like uh, a person without any lesions or you know a, a quote unquote normal person. We'll look at the picture um, and we'll be able to identify which details are important and which ones are sort of uh, trivial um, and sort of, you know, identify the, the important ones and focus on those ones and then ignore the other details that don't matter. Um, whereas uh, these two patients have sort of, because they, they can't identify um, important details uh, and then sort of separate them from the background of all the other details that don't matter, uh, they sort of lean in opposite directions where one sort of um, focuses only on the details um, uh, to the ex- exclusion of the whole, and then the other one focuses on the whole to the exclusion of the details. Um, but the sort of underlying um, cause of each side of this uh, deficiency is, is, is the same in both cases. Um, so like um, like most of us, if you see a die, you, you recognize sort of all at once you recognize it's a cubicle shape and it has a certain pattern of dots and like you, you just sort of recognize the image of a die um, very easily. Um, whereas one of these patients would sort of, you know, observe a bunch of dots and then sort of deduce, oh, this must be a die. Uh, whereas the other patient would observe like this cubicle form uh, and sort of deduce, um, um, you know, maybe it's a, yeah, it's, it's a cube of some kind, maybe it's a block, maybe it's a die, like something like that. Um, uh, but in each case, they have to sort of perform a kind of reasoning process or like a, a second step that most of us don't have to at least consciously go through. Um, they have to sort of think about like what what sort of thing could this be that's being presented to me? Um, either they they look at the like overall size and shape and then they try to deduce what kinds of objects, you know, have this type of um, size uh, and then, you know, conclude what what it might be. Or they look, the other side is like this, this one patient who looks at the, the details and says like, okay, this is a, an object that has dots on it, so therefore it must be a die. Um, um, but yeah, in each case, this sort of overall grasp of a pattern um, that all of us uh, would normally be able to grasp, you know, the, the fact that it's a cube with dots on it, um, and therefore it's a die, um, this overall pattern um, is something that they're unable to grasp. Uh, and so, yeah, it's this deficiency of um, isolating the figure from the ground um, is, is sort of like the abstract characterization of what is missing um, in these patients, uh, as opposed to saying that there's this sort of very discrete, um, you know, faculty of speech or something like that that would be missing. And so this deficiency is a, a kind of... Um, um, yeah, it's an overall incapacity to grasp uh, a structure in experience and behavior as opposed to the inability to respond to a particular kind of stimulus. And this is also why like, he lists all the different deficiencies that um, S has, you know, memory, reading, 
um, speech, et cetera, all these different things. Um, and if you sort of assumed that each of these faculties corresponded to a particular brain area, you would have to say, you know, this person has a lesion or, or has multiple lesions in each of these areas, uh, you know, um, must ha he must have, uh, you know, suffered injuries that um, affect like many different areas of the brain. Um, but the argument here is that because all of these deficiencies share the same structure of this figure ground, um, this incapacity to grasp the figure ground distinction, um, because of this, we can conclude that it's not the case that there's like this sort of multiple uh, lesions. Uh, it's actually um, overall this capacity to separate figure from ground that is deficient um, and not just uh, a sort of list of faculties that have been injured. And if we want to think maybe more generally about this figure ground distinction, um, and I think this will come up later in the book, but like isolating figure from ground is a sort of um, essential biological function, right? Like any organism has to, um, uh, you know, figure out what what elements of the environment are important. Like, are they, you know, which elements show uh, the presence of food or of a predator or of a potential mate, et cetera, and which other elements of the environment are um, sort of useless information that I can ignore. Um, uh, so, like, any organism has to respond to certain elements of the environment or certain um information coming in uh, and ignore other information coming in. Uh, and so uh, what this deficiency of uh, separating figure from ground shows is a kind of deficiency of vital response of the organism as a whole, as opposed to uh, a, a loss of, um, of any like sort of isolated function. And so the injury of, to the, the, this particular portion of the brain um, you know, it has particular effects uh, based on, you know, how those different elements or different uh, portions of the brain are involved in different behaviors, but it also affects the sort of overall adaptation of the person to their environment. Uh, and so the person um, finds themselves sort of incapable of responding appropriately to the environment by figuring out or isolating the elements that are important in a given situation and the elements that are uh, less important or uh, that can be ignored in that situation. Uh, and so, yeah, like in the in this given this kind of incapacity to isolate what's important, you can either like focus on every whatever detail happens to sort of strike your attention first uh, and then sort of get stuck on that detail just in case it's important, um, you know, not wanting to miss something important. Um, or you can like sort of uh, stay at the level of general impressions of like the, the sort of vague um, total shape of, a, of an object that's presented to you or, or size of the object um, because you you know that the details or a lot of the details will not be important. Um, so either response is a sort of it sort of makes sense, but it, it's it's a, a pathological response because you're not able to um, respond in an appropriate way to different situations. You have to sort of make do with um, this very uh, uh, elaborate and complicated sort of process of inference by like, okay, this object has a certain size and I recognize that certain objects of this category have that size. So therefore it might be an object of that category. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of workaround to um, uh, try to react to the situation in an appropriate way, but without having the sort of regular capacity to grasp the, the you know, what type of situation it is that you're presented with and what the appropriate response is. So it's, it's yeah, a workaround to find that appropriate response without having that capacity to grasp the situation as a whole. I have a somewhat tangential comment, but um, I was reading a little bit this week about kind of the trajectory of Merleau-Ponty's thought. And as I understand it, in I think his next, uh, his next major work is Phenomenology of Perception. And uh, it seems like he moves in a more transcendental um and like uh phenomenological in the in the traditional sense direction in that work but i bring that up because this idea of um figure and ground i understand he's talking about like perceptual structure here but with a more kind of transcendental inflection i think it would be an interesting way to think about um uh like a um 
structuralist philosophy um, in terms of the this gestalt distinction and uh, structure of sense that is the background against which figures um, sort of become meaningful uh, in addition to, I guess, seeing it in this more um, psychologistic way. I don't know if uh, Merleau-Ponty ever explicitly wrote about his what he thought about structuralism or any possible connection with structuralism, but um, I think it's kind of an interesting, could be an interesting connection. Yeah, I think he does talk about structuralism in, um, uh, he has a book, Sense and Nonsense. I think it's a collection of, of papers. Uh, I, I read it years ago, so I don't remember much about it. But um, um, yeah, I think um, in general, I would say that structuralism, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different uh, sort of approaches that all fall under in some or they can all be sort of described as structuralists. Uh, and a lot of the people who are commonly described as structuralists would deny being structuralists or, or that there is such a thing as structuralism. So it's, it's a kind of nebulous category. But um, one sort of aspect that they tend to share is um, an idea of, um, of analyzing structure as opposed to um, uh, taking structure to be holistic in the sense that Merleau-Ponty wants to do it in, in this book, at least. Um, so there's like, in this book, we have this notion of structure, like he later in the book, he'll, he'll talk about melodic structure. Um, uh, and I think he's already used this term uh, a little bit earlier. Um, but he, so like the sort of general idea here is that when we hear a melody or when we remember a melody, um, we can't sort of reduce this experience to just a sequence of individual experiences of hearing tones, even though the melody is composed of, you know, tone A followed by tone B, et cetera. Um, we can't just combine each of these individual isolated experiences. We have to somehow have a grasp of the melody as a whole or of the sequence of tones as a, a structure. Um, and, and then the individual tones that make up the melody sort of fit into that structure. Um, but what structuralism would do and sort of in, in response to something like this would be to try to analyze what are the um, oppositions of elements that make up that structure of the melody. So for example, you would want to identify the, uh, the set of tones that make up the tone system of a, of a musical um, uh, tradition. Like in our Western tradition, we have a 12 tone, uh, uh, a system of 12 tones that can be used to make up uh, a melody, for example. And then you would say like, which of these oppositions um, uh, or, or which sequences of tones out of this set of tones um, constitute um, like possible melodic sequences, for example. Um, uh, obviously, you'd have to do a much more complicated uh, uh, analysis than that because it depends on the harmonic environment and so on. Um, but that, that would be sort of like the oversimplified way of doing a, a structuralist analysis. So you would start from this set of oppositions between the possible elements that might appear in a particular position. So any of these 12 possible tones um, uh, so starting from that set of oppositions, then you would try to analyze a melody in terms of those oppositions, um, uh, as opposed to sort of grasping a melody as a sort of intrinsic whole, which can't be isolated, at least in principle, can't be um, broken down into isolated elements. Uh, so yeah, I think structuralism in some sense is holistic in the sense that it, it has to do with this whole set of oppositions, but it's also in a different way than like Pavlov. It's, it's also... Um, it, it also has to do with elements because it, it looks at each of these uh, individual tones, for example, as a, an element. But um, what's different here is that each of these elements only is what it is in opposition to the other 11. Uh, it's not that each tone has like a simple response that it elicits in the organism. It's the fact that it's this tone and not this other tone or one of the 11 other possible tones. It's this um opposition property that each of the tones has in relation to the others that makes it part of a musical system. Um, but yeah, so Metaponsi will talk about, uh, and I think actually in Phenomenology of Behavior, he might, if I remember correctly, or Phenomenology of Perception, I mean, um, he might talk about um, structuralism to some extent there as well. I can't remember. But anyway, he does he does talk about structuralism in a few places. Um, but uh, yeah, I think he's sort of doing something different than this sort of um, structuralism that, that thinks in terms of oppositions of potential um, elements of a structure. Um, I'm just sort of looking ahead. Um, yeah, we've got a couple more pages of this 
um, section in small type. I wonder if maybe this would be a good place to stop to, for today, um, um, or we can go ahead. I don't know what people think. I would not mind stopping a bit early today. Uh, I'm a bit tired tonight. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I know it's late for you. Um, uh, okay, yeah, so let's stop here, um, and we'll continue with, um, yeah, this small type. It's kind of a weird, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know why they kept this in the translation, but, like, these books from uh, Presse Universitaire de France, they always have, like, sections in small type, which I think were just, like, a typographical sort of convenience, like, people were trying to fit in as much content as they could in a, a limit of a certain number of pages. Um I don't think it has any like real significance in terms of like uh, um, the importance of these sections or whatever. But yeah, so it's probably not, it probably didn't need to be kept in the translation, but I guess it's, you know, better to keep than not to keep. Yeah, I was wondering what that was. At first I thought it was like quoted sections, but it's obviously not true. Yeah, I think it's just like, yeah, just fitting as much text as possible into a page restriction. Okay, uh, so let me stop the bot.